Welcome to the 2018 seasons of the Wealth Standard Podcast, celebrating the principles of life, liberty, and property. You are listening to season three, Property. So my guest today is Angela Duckworth, and she is the Christopher H. Brown Distinguished Professor of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. And she is also the founder and CEO of Character Lab, which I think we're going to get into today, uh, which is a not-for-profit whose mission is to advance the science and practice of character development. And she's also the author of the, I believe it came out in 2016, the New York Times bestselling book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Angela, thanks uh, for joining me today. It's awesome to have you on. Thank you. I'm so happy to have this conversation. For those who don't know you, I think you're uh, right next to Simon Siddick as far as uh, TED Talk uh, views are concerned. But for those that don't, would you mind going into your experiencing and discovering the principle of grit? I am a psychologist by training. And before I was a psychologist, I was a teacher. I taught kids math in middle school and high school. And I think the fascination I have with grit and with achievement actually in, in part stem from being a teacher and watching kids. Some of them do fantastically well, others in the same exact classroom under the same roof, you know, using the same books, and actually of seemingly uh, comparable intelligence, like not doing well. And I think one of the reasons that some do well in life and some don't is the ability to muster perseverance and passion for something over long periods of time, not giving up, and also thinking about something because you want to, kind of being in adulthood, at least voluntarily obsessed by something so that you're always really working on it in the back of your mind. So the principle, and and this helps me sometimes understand word or an idea is, is knowing what the opposite is. What would you say the opposite of grit is? What a great question. I guess the opposite of grit would be apathy. Maybe the one word opposite would just be apathy, you know, not caring and certainly not doing anything about a goal that means something to you. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was, when I was preparing for this, that's what I thought is, it's just not, it's not caring about something. It's the, you're okay with mediocre things, mediocre results. Yeah, so I think we're also, um, oh, just to say that I think there are some people who would say, well, I have a really good work ethic, but they really are working on like one thing after another, and there's no consistency in the direction in which they're working. And I think that's also a failure of grit is to be working hard, but just on like very different things all the time. And there's nothing immoral about that, but I do think it's hard to be excellent at something unless you work at it for a while. For sure. And I would also say with the drive behind it, which is actually going to be my next question, but the drive behind the effort is also important in a sense to identify. So you know, as you've done tremendous amount of study and research around the principle, what is the common denominator as far as where it comes from? One of the things that I should say at the outset is that this question of, is it my genes? Was I born gritty? Or there are people that we know who are like, oh my gosh, they were like that when they were two years old. There is a genetic component to grit. In other words, your DNA do influence how gritty you are. But that's also true of extroversion and your height and, you know, your preference for broccoli. I mean, I'm not kidding. These have all been studied in twin studies and everything about you is partly your genes. So I should acknowledge that, but I don't think it's worth obsessing over in part because it's true for everything. And it doesn't mean that our experiences don't matter. They obviously, and they enormously matter. Maybe the most important thing about grit is actually, I think, having a role model, you know, somebody that you've seen uh, work hard, get up again, and actually somebody who 
wears it on their sleeve that they love what they do, which is why I think leaders and also anybody who considers themselves a mentor or a teacher to another person, they play a very important role in cultivating grit in other people. What are some of the societal archetype of grit now that you're talking about kind of role models and actual people that exemplify some of those characteristics? Well, if you look carefully at the life stories of the people that you admire, I mean, literally pick your favorite coach, your pick your sport, pick your favorite musician, your favorite politician, your favorite entrepreneur. Are favorite politicians? Yeah, I know, right? It's like a contradiction in terms these days, but it's hard not to find stories of passion and perseverance of people who have been toiling for hours a little bit behind the scenes, actually. So if you look at Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, right? So like, who comes from professional wrestling and really makes it into Hollywood, right? Where he is signing these blockbuster deals more than one a year. That, if you ask him, isn't luck and it wasn't talent. It was that he was incredibly gritty. And also the hours of work that he puts in behind the scenes, you know, they never show up on YouTube, right? So I think you could, in a way, like nominate your favorite high achiever. And then when you start digging, and of course, have an open mind, look for whatever you want to look for. I do often find, at least I have found when I do that, I find grit. Character Lab, which is the nonprofit where you're at right now, and also something you spend a great deal of time with. I look at children. I have have three children and, you know, they're all different. They all are born with different personalities and, you know, some are driven this way or some are driven that way. From a children standpoint, what are some of the techniques and the, the things you do to get kids to understand the importance of the principle of grit? There are two things that I would recommend for parents, and I'm also a parent. Mine are 16 and 15 years old. I have a feeling they're probably a little older than yours. No, mine are 14. Well, she'll be 14 next month and then 13 or uh, 12, sorry. Okay, so you're just behind me maybe, right? So there's two things I think parents can keep in mind uh, when they want to bring out grit in their own uh, children. One is about perseverance and work ethic. I do think kids are not born spontaneously wanting to work hard it's part of just being an animal. I mean, no animals, you know, you don't see like squirrels in the park doing push-ups, right? Like effort is something that all animals try to avoid. So in a way, we're all lazy. And so when you want your kid to work hard and practice and take feedback and come at it again and go to a track meet, even though it's raining, I mean, these are things that I think parents have to play a role. You cannot expect your kids to do those things on their own. And when your kids are about the age that mine are, you will see that all of those times that you made them do things and maybe nag them a little bit, they do pay off. So I don't think, I used to think when I was raising my kids, I thought that they would just do it on their own. I I thought they would see my husband and myself work really hard and just do it on their own. And they do need more direct parenting than I thought. On the passion side though, which may be even more important, but at least is important, is that you have to watch your kids for what they're interested in and really encourage them to sample widely and to try things and to develop those interests. Nothing sadder to me than a 22-year-old graduating from, for example, the Ivy League school where I teach. They've got great skills. They know how to read. They know how to write. They've got great math skills, but they have no interests. You're like, oh, but what are you passionate about? It's like, I don't know. I mean, that is so sad. I think that kids do have interests that are emerging in them, but their parents can actually help them. If you notice that your kid seems to like to throw the ball around a lot, like really encourage them to try some sports. My own daughter, Lucy, she was like thinking about food all the time. She was basically like baking or trying to bake. 
And I said to her when she was about 13 or 14, I'm like, you know, you could probably get a job like volunteering in a kitchen at a restaurant. And she's like, oh, no, that's ridiculous. And no, I'm too young. She was scared. She was shy. And I made her do it. And now she's, you know, um, uh, she's, you know, worked in kitchens. She has a Saturday job. And I think she would fully own that baking is one of her core interests that she'll have for her whole life. So don't just work on work ethic as a parent. Also be uh, just as vigilant at trying to get your kids to develop interests. And I want to I, I want to break down just a couple of things that you said, which I think I've I've struggled with in a in a sense because I have my two oldest are girls and I have a four year old too, and I grew up with all boys and I played sports and really just got a huge wake up call with my wife and two girls, as far as you know understanding how they work and what they're driven by and their the care and you know difference th- than men and so for girls especially at that age where you drive and you push. Failure can have a different context, especially when it comes to the social side side of things. So what are some of the ways in which you have helped your children or you've seen children taught or influenced that helps them get through those difficult times, right? As you're trying to push them into a class or push them to do this or have them do that. Like what are some things you use as opposed to just being, being just fighting their belligerence? Of course, true that everybody fears mistake making and failure, but it's also true what you said, which is that there does seem to be a kind of uh, like a female perfectionism, like, oh my gosh, it's not perfect. That seems to be more common among girls than it is among boys. And it plays out in all kinds of ways, you know, boys um, raising their hand. And before they even know what the question is, they've got their hand raised in class to answer it, whereas girls would be much more hesitant on average and then mortified if they make a mistake. Um, Whereas I think there might be many boys out there who are like, whatever, I'm gonna raise my hand the next time. So what do you do then if you feel like that's maybe not going to be the ideal for your daughters? I think that, first of all, times are changing, right? And I um, sometimes say to my girls like, oh, you know, I'm just going to be a boy about it. And what I mean by that is I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to stand up for myself and I'm going to be bold and effectively raise my hand. But the times are changing. So for me, that means something. I grew up in the 70s and that to me is like, oh, that's how boys act. But my own teenage girls get really annoyed at me when I say that. They're like, what do you say that for? Like, there's no reason why boys would be more confident than girls. So the times are changing. And yet I still think that there are some persistent differences that that we can do something about. I think that if we can teach our girls and our boys that mistakes are information, like if you raise your hand and you get the wrong answer, then there's something to be learned there. It's like, well, why did you say seven? The answer is nine not seven, but there was a reason why you said seven. And there's just a huge amount to learn from that. And if we can get the emotion out of it, right? And the paralyzing fear of embarrassment and the shame and the like, oh my God, I'm not perfect. And then just take mistakes and correct answers as information. It will be like this Rudyard Kipling poem, which by the way, he wrote to his son, not to his daughter, but it's called If. And there's a stanza that's actually the last thing that you see before you enter the center court at Wimbledon. So the players all have to walk onto the center court under the saying, it's like, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. And what that poem really means, I think, in that line is that whether you get the right answer or the wrong answer, you win the game, you lose the game, you get picked for the fellowship, you don't. They're imposters because really it's just information. It's life. And your job is to learn from it. Good, learn from it. Bad, learn from it. Always learning, learning, learning. Where does that come from? 
where is the idea behind failure is a bad thing and I'm afraid of it. And failure is like a positive thing that is, I would say, necessary to learning, especially learning in a meaningful way. Nobody knows. Honestly, I was just having a meeting with neuroscientists about this very question. You know, why are mistakes so terrifying and why do we not want to make them in front of other people in particular? It's one thing to fail on your own, but it's terrifying to fail in front of other people. I don't think anybody really knows, but here's our guess, a collective group of scientists that have been working on this that I've been meeting with. There is something that happens when you're five and you go to kindergarten and you're in school and you're now being evaluated. So if you notice like two and three-year-olds, I mean, they drop stuff all the time. They're making messes. They break things. They don't care. You've got a four-year-old, right? They're just like, I mean, they're like wrecking balls. And but crucially, you don't see a lot of shame or embarrassment when they fall mm. down. Or Now, if I fell down in front of you, I think I would be embarrassed before I even felt pain physically, right? It'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm humiliated before I worried about whether I broke my kneecap or something. So what happens between four and where you and I are I do think there's something about like going to school, being evaluated, and then everyone is sort of seeing how worthwhile they are relative to others. I don't think it's just the fact that we go to school. Maybe it's just about being older. Mm -hmm. But I think if we can remember what it was like to be a young kid and to kind of go back to where we started, I think that is actually how the people that I study who are really, really continuously improving, it's how they've evolved. They have a beginner's mindset. And that's, I think about that all the time, you know, especially with kids, because there's this kind of paradox where you want them to succeed and you want them to be happy, but you realize that it, success isn't going to come about by always being happy. There's going to be instances that, and pressures and failures that are going to make them very upset. And I'm not sure if that's a, if it's avoidable, but I've thought about the same thing. And, you know, I look at a bigger team here. And the principle, we try to really provide good context around the principle of failure. And the principle of failure, it, it is a, a kind of a socially designed idea, if you think about it. And it, I think it's good because the biggest successes I've seen have been the biggest, they failed the biggest. And it's interesting just that, I don't know if it's a failure muscle or something that you stretch and build, but I see that. And I would say the grit idea, as I've thought about having this interview with you, the grid idea is what happens when you experience that. It's such a profoundly insightful thing that you just said. And I have a student who's working with me and she finds that people can have two different attitudes about failure. There are people who think that failure is debilitating. It's just destructive and bad and like a typhoon, you should just avoid failure at all costs. And then alternative is that, that there is a silver lining to failure, that of course you would rather be successful, at least in the instance, but that failure is the way to learn, that failure can be strengthening. And so to see failure as a cloud with a silver lining, I just want to emphasize that it's not that we know anybody who's just like, oh, I hope I trip every time I take a step and I hope that all my ventures go bankrupt. But to see the cloud and then to also look for the silver lining, I think is really adaptive. And what she finds is that when, for example, parents have a failure is potentially also enhancing as well as painful, that their kids can be much more growth oriented and, and less fearful about making mistakes. And that's, I would say, adding to that, it isn't this one-time mental shift. You know, it's a philosophy or it's a kind of a way of living if you, if you think about it. And I do believe there's some of the books that, uh, that you reference in your book 
and also in, in other instances, you know, Carol Dweck's uh, mindset book, there's a lot of talk around this idea. And I think it's exciting because I look at generations and I think we're in the, a similar generation in the generation of my, my kids and there's the generations in between. It is just fascinating to me how their mindset associated with life is different. So would you maybe speak to that as you look at millennials, you look at your kids, I'm not even sure what generation is called. I don't know what they're called anymore, generation And what you've seen is their exposure to more information, their exposure to, I would say more judgment in a sense, because 30 years ago, it was your class, it was where you went to church, it was your neighborhood. Now it's exposed to a very wide audience. And I'm not sure if that has any correlation to, to what their potential is. How have you seen the different generations deal with this idea of perseverance based on the expectations society has for them? It's a really hard question, but it's a great question. How are the millennials different from like the greatest generation or how are the kids growing up today different from our generation, right? And it's something that you kind of wish you had a time machine for, right? Because as a scientist, I can't really actually do what scientists do, which is do an experiment. I have to like get a kid from the 1950s to come into the lab <laughs> with a kid from today. And that's a real limit. Um, I will say this, though, that the social media and just like in general, right, like it used to be, if you think about like what it was like to grow up in our generation, but like I want to take you back in time even more. I mean, imagine you're growing up in a village 300 years ago. Like you don't even know any more than like 100 people, right? There's just the people in the village. and so you might be the best musician in the village, right? And like, you could be like the second best best baker in the village. Now to be like the best baker, okay, out of 7 billion people, right? Because the world is flat and we can make all comparisons. I mean, you're very unlikely to be the best musician because there are 7 billion people around. I do think that that, and this is just a guess because I don't have a time machine. My guess is that that does produce a lot of stress and pressure and uncertainty and insecurity. One of the mysteries that science hasn't figured out is that rates of depression and anxiety in particular are going up, not only in the United States and not only among teenagers, but in other age groups and also all around the world. And you have to ask, like, we have more food, we have more entertainment, we have more safety, actually crime is going down but still anxiety is going up. Like what's going on? And I do wonder whether it's in part because these comparisons are not just with 30 people anymore. They're not with like a hundred people. They're not with like that. Like you're just comparing yourself to everyone and you're not as cool as Beyonce. You don't sing as well as Adele and you're not as fast as Usain Bolt and you're not as good looking as fill in the blank. And I think those can be difficult to manage for the people who are growing up today. Yeah, my next neighbor, he just they just moved in this summer. <clears throat> and this is what I thought of when you were, you were speaking. Uh, but they moved from Palo Alto. And there's a lot of people moving from California, I would say for a number of reasons, but you know, financially. But his two little kids, there's pressure growing up there because of the expectations set uh, by the community and the immense amount of innovation that is occurring. And so you know, having a startup and starting a business and innovating you know, that kind of is what the label most are trying to achieve, which I'm not sure is realistic for everyone, right? I mean, that is a, it's a fascinating statement because the pressure is building. And I would say the significance of teaching some of the principles that you're focusing at with, uh, with your nonprofit, the Character Lab, I think that's, that's vital because kids, I don't think kids can get enough of it. And I would say parents these days, I've put myself into this uh, position. I work a lot. 
and the, the amount of time I spend focused on really understanding their experiences in life and then helping them to process them the right way and put them in the right context has been hard. And that's where I would say services like yours are profound. And it's not just kids. I mean, it's like everyone. It's, adult, it's adults too, but more so with kids because kids are our future. And I love the principle of grit because I think it's one of those fundamentals to success that also made me think of a couple other questions in regards to your study of success and achievement, which is what are maybe some of the other complements or principles associated with like the success or achievement equation, or is it grit alone? Definitely not grit alone. All right. And I won't say much about luck, although I want to say I do believe there is luck. I mean, like there's definitely luck, good luck, bad luck. And anybody who believes differently, I just don't think they're facing reality. There's also talent. I don't study talent, um, but I do think some people are better at us than certain, like naturally. It doesn't mean that we can't change our talent, but I do think that there are advantages. But other than luck and other than talent and other than grit, like what else? I think there's two things that I think uh, just to highlight as um, general categories of things. One is interpersonal or social skills. I call these character strengths of heart, but they're generosity, gratitude, empathy, social agility, you know, being able to manage different social situations. And there are some careers where you don't need it very much. Like I just sit in this room and I program on this computer and like nobody talks to me, but almost all careers require that you interact in a harmonious and positive way with other people. And CEOs tell me all the time that in addition to grit, they want people with these team social skills. And then the second category would be curiosity, actually, or what I call character strengths of mind. So curiosity, creativity, intellectual humility. And this is essentially being a very good thinker and being somebody who, as a fallback, will always be like, oh, let me think about that. Let me like keep thinking about it because clear from this conversation that that's you, but it's not everyone because you could also stop thinking about it. And a lot of people just <laughs> don't think about it. So I think that in terms of this equation, there's luck, there is uh, talent there's grit, there are, you know, character strengths of heart, social character strengths, and then there are character strengths of mind and being a curious, thoughtful, critical person who really likes to flex the muscle of their mind. If you have all of those things, it's actually, the odds are going to be in your favor. How, and one of the final questions that I wanted to ask you is, as you've studied this and you've clearly put a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of resources behind studying this and helping others understand it, how has it impacted you as an individual, whether it's with, you know, professionally or with your family or, or personally? I do, in, before I get out of bed every day, I do three blessings, right? So three good things. I just, it doesn't take more than 60 seconds. And sometimes it's the same list. I'm like, Jason, Lucy, Amanda, you know, because those are three good things in my life. And sometimes it's like, oh, the avocados finally got ripe. Like, okay, that's one good thing. You know, it's not raining today. Um, I had a really good meeting. But one of the things that is often on my list is that I really love what I do. I feel like I have meaning and I have purpose. I can tell you feel the same. And For those people who can wake up and get out of bed and say, I don't know how far I'm going to get, but this is a really good road to walk down. That's me. I know a lot of people who have almost infinite wealth or they have fame or they have power, but if they don't have a sense of purpose, like this road is worth walking down. I don't know how far I'm going to get. The other day I emailed a student that I've been studying because he's gritty. And I literally said in my email, Cody, I will take my dying breath trying to figure out how to get kids to thrive. 
And he wrote me back and he was, we're going to work on that together. But anyway, that is itself, I think, the greatest blessing. And I think it's possible for anyone, doesn't mean you have to win the Nobel Prize or the Super Bowl, but to, could everyone in this world wake up and feel like they're working on something that has purpose? and to try their best to do a better job the next day? I think that the answer is yes, everyone can. I hope everyone does do that. I think that the feeling you get of seeing somebody achieve, right, and accomplish something, like there's very few circumstances that, <laughs> that are better great. than that. And I believe whatever level you're at, that level doesn't dictate having that feeling, right? And being able to be of influence for somebody else and also driving uh, towards something else yourself. And it's one of those, the discovery of purpose, I think, is uh, the whole Simon, the infinite game and game theory, right? And it's not something you just wake up one morning and have a thought pop in your mind, but it's a constant uh, pursuit, but it's one of the greatest pursuits ever. And I look at, there's a, a really high suicide rate in, you know, in, in Utah that they've been talking about recently. And I look at kids and with the, the limited experiences that they've had as far as understanding the meaning you know, behind their experiences, I don't know, I'm, the, the school system, it really frustrates me sometimes with, I think their intention is genuine, but the ability to really talk to some of these skills and principles are absent, unfortunately. So would you maybe mind, as we conclude, talking more about Character Lab and what you guys are doing and how you're being of influence to whether it's uh, on an individual level or a school system level? Character Lab provides actionable advice to parents and teachers, all based on science. So for those grown-ups in the world who think about kids a lot and how to help them develop grit and gratitude, curiosity, self-control, creativity, honesty, all the things that Aristotle said make a good life, make a life worth living, a life of meaning and purpose, as you put it, there is a science behind those character strengths. and. We try to share it. Um, everything that we offer, you know, watch this video, try this activity, try saying this to your kid. It's all based on science. And because it's supported by foundations and individuals, it is 100% free. That's amazing. Well, what are ways in which the listeners can learn about Character Lab, follow you? We'll post your TED Talk on uh, show notes and links to your site. But is there any other social media that you use to communicate? I do have social media. I'm so bad at social media that I can't even tell you like what the handles are. But if you go to characterlab.org, you'll see that there is a newsletter that I'm starting to write for parents awesome. and teachers. And you know that's free too. Angela, it was awesome to have you on. Thank yeah. you so much for sharing uh, your wisdom with us. And I uh, wish you the best. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for joining us as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.